We're in the uh, series of classes called Life as a Believer. And um, for those of you who missed the first class last week, we were talking about the basics of the Christian life, basic disciplines that we need in the Christian life. And so the primary objective is to answer the question, what does it mean to live as a Christian? And so we want to ask and answer some questions like, how does God speak to me? How do I talk to God? What is the church? And how do I engage with the world? And um, to take the good news of Jesus Christ to them. Last week we laid the foundation for understanding the miracle of salvation, a class called Saved by God. And we spent most of our time in two passages, Ephesians 2 and Titus 3. We looked at our condition apart from Christ. And the two images that we discussed in more detail were the images of a slave, that we are enslaved to sin, and then a corpse, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And we saw how God, in in spite of our helpless condition, um, initiated and completed the work of salvation that from the beginning all the way till the end, it, it was and is a work of God. And it's important for us to understand that that God doesn't save us so that we can have fire insurance and then go about living our lives however we want to. But rather, God saves us for His glory. And this leads us to today's topic that we're going to consider, which is that we want to live God's way and that God expects us to live His way. This is really the next step in our thinking. If we understand that we were saved by God, the next step is to understand that that we are saved for God or for His purposes. So let's um, begin with the word of prayer and then we'll look at, um, look at our material this morning. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the gift of salvation that comes from You through Jesus Christ by the power of Your Spirit. And may you help us understand and be reminded today of what we have been saved for, that, that you have saved us for your glory, for good works. And so we pray that you would help us to be more motivated in our service and that we would be willing to do more for you because of what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So if we negatively speaking, we are saved from God's wrath, then positively we're saved for something, for uh, the glorification of God. And so we want to consider what it means to live God's way. We looked last week at our lives apart from Christ, that that we were essentially marked out as people who were self-oriented people, people who lived for ourselves. We did not live for God. We weren't concerned with His commands. Uh, We could not even obey His commands even if we wanted to. We were hostile toward Him. We were hostile toward other people. But when we became Christians, everything changed. And we looked at a few verses last week with regard to this. 1 Peter 2.9, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, so that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Ephesians 1.4, He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. Or 
The one that I often think about is Ephesians 2.10. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Not simply to escape hell. That's part of it. But, but we are created for something. We're so, created so that we can advance the work of God. And so from those three texts alone, we see that we are chosen to do something for God, not simply to, to um, as the song says, be carried up into the clouds on flowery beds of ease. Okay, so here's your blanks. Two images that demonstrate our condition apart from Christ. Um, a slave and a corpse. And then God saved us from His wrath and for His glory. And it's a review of what we looked at last week. And then the next one there is um, we were chosen by God to declare God's praises. First Peter two nine just just quoted that one for you. Ephesians one four to be holy and blameless. And then Ephesians 2.10, to do good works. So if God has brought us out of slavery to sin and into slavery to righteousness, those are the two choices according to Romans 6. If God has brought us out of those things, then the, the next question that we have to ask is, how in the world is this possible? I mean... If we are dead apart from Christ, how is it even possible that we could do these things? How could we do anything that's pleasing to God if our condition was as bad as it was? And the short answer is that at salvation, God has made us new. God has made us new. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. God is the one who creates in us and provides for us this initial cleansing at salvation. But this cleansing doesn't just eliminate our penalty. It also makes for us a decisive break between our former way of life and our new way of life. There's a decisive break between what God has done and what He's now going to do. That is, what, what we're involved in. We're enslaved to sin. We're dead to God. We're dead spiritually to God. And so God does this work in us. Would someone read verse 11, 1 Corinthians 6? Verse 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6? Yeah. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Alright, so Paul lists there in the prior verses our former condition, our former way of life. And he said, such were some of you. You were drunks, you were thieves, so on. But you were washed. So this cleansing work that God does actually changes us. And here's probably the most helpful and maybe the most well-known verse, 2 Corinthians 5.17 on this topic. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Someone read that for us. So, how is it possible that we could go from slaves and 
corpses to to people who are walking worthy of God. They're actually doing what God expects of us. And the answer is that God has made us into a new creation. No longer are we slaves to sin. No longer is sin our master. We're dead. No longer are we dead to the things of God. We're dead to sin now and alive to God. And so through Christ's work on the cross and by the power of the Spirit, God takes us who were dead and makes us into new creations. This is why we call it the miracle of salvation. Um, when we get to theology, I'm going to argue that I don't believe that miracles are happening today, except for that one. That's the only miracle that I think that happens today, and that is the miracle of regeneration. Because God takes something, someone who is spiritually dead and breathes spiritual life into them so that they can now serve Him. And so through Christ's work on the cross, this is not simply a bandage. You know, it kind of just bandages up our, our ills or our wounds. It's actually a, a breathing into a, a life-giving work that God does in us. And as we looked at last week, we, we can be confident that God will complete this all the way till the end, right? Philippians 1.6, if He began it in you, then He will complete it. And so as new creations, we have the ability. Um, we have the ability to to respond to the work of God. We have this obligation, this privileged obligation now to serve God. So when we were saved, God performed an initial cleansing act, say cleansing act within us, making a decisive break with the patterns of sin in our lives. God performed a cleansing act making a decisive break of the patterns of sin, and then God does not simply bandage us up. Rather, He breathes new life into us. All right, any questions before we look at the characteristics of what this looks like? Three characteristics of our new lives in Christ. That when God converts us and seals us with the Holy Spirit, um, there are three things that happen to us. Three things that we should be confident uh, in. And the first is a new nature slash mindset. New nature slash mindset. Will someone read those verses there on the handout? Romans 8, 5-8. Alright, so the phrase, according to, you see that the first line, according to the flesh, and then the second line, according to the Spirit. Those phrases are talking about 
a, um, a disposition. Paul's making a distinction here between those who live according to the flesh, those who walk, we could say, or conduct themselves according to the flesh, and those who walk according to the Spirit. It's, a, it's the person's disposition. So the first thing that distinguishes us, a Christ, Christians, between us and non-Christians is our disposition, the fundamental essence of who we are. We are a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. We know that in other parts of Scripture, like Galatians 5, that those who live according to the sinful nature of the flesh, they are controlled by sin and they manifest the works of the flesh. So we can go through the vice list in Galatians 5 and see what an unbeliever lives like, the kinds of sins that describe them. Greed, anger, sexual sin, envy, deceit, and so on. And that's the way that we were before we came to Christ. We were oriented towards the sinful things of the world. We, we served those things. They served us. They served our pleasures. So the first thing that marks us off as different is our disposition. The second thing is our affections. Notice verse 6 there. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. So our affections are such that we don't even want to please God. We don't want to come into a right relationship with God. That's the nature of an unbeliever. And so the implication from these verses is that as believers, we now have a different desire, a different affection, right? That we, we now do want to please God. We do have the ability to please God. In the context of the lives we're supposed to live as Christians, why is this understanding so important? I mean, we, we have to recognize that God's not making demands on us that we ultimately cannot fulfill. And He's not making demands that we have no desire to fulfill. So the, the commands that we receive from God in Scripture as believers, not only can we fulfill them, but we want to fulfill them, right? And that's important because as unbelievers, we could not do that. We now live according to the Spirit. We are of the Spirit. The Spirit resides in us. And so believers have a new nature. Believers have been given a new nature. In contrast, the unbelievers enjoy practicing the works of the devil. Ephesians, uh, Galatians chapter 5. Remember, Galatians chapter 5 is where we have the fruit of the Spirit. That's where we often go in, in that chapter. But right before that, he talks about the deeds of the flesh. And he says that those who are in the Spirit will not carry out the deeds of the flesh. doesn't mean they never commit them, but they don't practice them. They're not, that's not the regular habit of their life that they carry out those, those deeds of the flesh. And that leads us to our, our next observation, characteristic of a new life, and that is that we are dead to sin and freed from sin. We are dead to sin and freed from sin. Now, before conversion, 
We were dead to the things of God and enslaved to sin. We couldn't get out from underneath the tyranny, the rule of sin. And we didn't want to. Someone read this text here for us. Romans 6, verses 1, 2, 6, and 7. There on the handout. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Knowing this, that our old self is crucified with them in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who died is free from sin. So Paul kind of addresses this question that may come up with believers that, hey, you know, if I'm saved, it doesn't really matter how I live. And Paul says, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? May it never be. Because if we understand what God has done to us, why would we want to do that? Because our old self is crucified with Him, verse 6. We're no longer slaves to sin. So see these two ideas of death and, and um, removal or fr- freedom? Death is in the first line of verse 6. Our old self was crucified with Him. We're dead to sin. And then we're freed from sin. We're no longer slaves. In the last line there, right before verse 7. And then verse 7 says the same thing. Christ's death is applied to us in such a way that when He died on the cross, our old self, our sinful nature was crucified with Him. Our old self has been crucified with Christ. And then verse 7, we have been freed from sin. And so that means that sin is no longer our what? Our master. Sin no longer has the power it once did. So why would we go on living in sin? In our former lives, we were dead to God, alive to sin. In our new lives, we are alive to God and dead to sin. Sin no longer is our master. We have a new master in our house. It's the Holy Spirit. He indwells in us and He seals us until the day of redemption. I might be thinking, wait a second, I don't feel dead to sin and I don't feel freed from sin. Sin feels like a struggle to me every single day, every single hour. You think that's what Paul has in mind when he said that we're dead to sin and freed from sin, that we no longer sin, that we no longer have the ability to sin? Is that what he's saying? Now, it is true that in the next life that will be the case. We will be freed from sin in that way. But what Paul's talking about is not that we're going to be freed from sin completely, that that it that it will never appeal to us anymore. And we know that because of verses 1 and 2 there. Um, He says, Shall we continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So the, the fact that there's a possibility of sin is what generates the question. And we know from Romans 7 too that Paul himself struggled with it, didn't he? that there was this war going on between what he wanted to do and what he actually did. So here Paul is saying to Christians, listen, 
positionally, we have died to sin. Positionally, sin is not our master. It no longer reigns over us. It no longer controls what we do. It no longer uh, forces us, in a sense, to, to obey it. We still have the ability to sin as believers. We still struggle with various temptations, but not like when we were unbelievers. You see, an unbeliever cannot please God. That's what Romans 8 7 says. They cannot please God. We might think, well, I know lots of good people are unbelievers and they can please God. Well, no, they can't. Because the mind that lives and is set on the things of the flesh cannot please God. And so that means that an unbeliever, any good act that they do, okay, anything good that you see an unbeliever do, is done with the wrong motive. We know that because we now are made to, to do similar kinds of acts, right? Acts of love, but done with the right motive because we're doing it to glorify God. That's completely different than what an unbeliever is doing. Now, we can't get into their minds and dig deep into why are you doing those things then? But what we do know is that an unbeliever cannot please God. All right? So, we have a new nature, new mindset. We're dead and freed, dead to sin and freed from sin. And then one more. Any questions before we get to this next characteristic? All right. Thirdly, we are in a spiritual battle. Spiritual battle. Turn back to Galatians 5. Despite the fact that when we become Christians, the orientation of our life changes and we're dead to sin, there's still a tension that, that we are positionally in Christ. We are positionally dead to sin and freed from sin. But there's still this tension because there's this continuing presence of the flesh, right, that is pulling us away from God, that is warring in our souls. This is the primary battle that we face in life. Our our battle, Paul says in Ephesians 6, is not against flesh and blood. It's against these spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. And so, yes, we are dead to sin and alive to God. But, but sin still remains. And that means that there's going to be a spiritual battle. And, and the good news for us is that we have the power to overcome. In the next life, we will overcome. That's one of the ways that um, God describes those who make it to the next life, that is, make it to eternity with Him, is as overcomers. He who overcomes will receive eternal life. So we are overcomers in the sense that, that we trust Christ all the way till the end and, and is evidenced by our, by our works. But what we need to recognize for our purposes now is that that there is this war that goes on between the flesh and the spirit. And Paul picks up on this in Galatians 5. Would someone read verses 17 and 18? Alright, 
so there's this war going on between within us between the flesh and the spirit verse 16 says so walk by the spirit which implies that that we don't walk by the spirit all the time right that's why he would have to give that kind of command so walk by the spirit you who are a believer you have been freed from sin and who has been made dead to sin start living that way here's how john piper puts it um he says this is on your handout when paul says the flesh has been crucified he means that the decisive battle has been fought and won by the spirit the spirit has captured the capital and he's broken the back of the resistance movement so the flesh is as good as dead. Its doom is sure. So think, um, so think um, the conquest, right? When Joshua goes in to the the land of promise, he doesn't defeat every single city. I hope you recognize that, right? He he, he defeats the major cities. He takes the strongholds, and then at the end of Joshua. The command is now you individually need to go and eliminate the rest of these Canaanites. You still have response. So we've captured the the land, but you need to continue to do the work. This is what what Piper's talking about happens with our salvation as well. It would be like if someone came and tried to conquer the state of Michigan. They might go to Detroit and Grand Rapids and Flint and whatever other big cities we have. Okay, maybe Mackinac, some key cities. And if they defeated those cities, they would effectively have won the state of Michigan. But then there's these outliers, right? There's these pockets of resistance like us in Royal Oak who are rising up and saying, no, you're not taking our state. And the point is, from, from, the, from God's perspective, what should be our perspective, when we come to Christ, it's, it's like that kind of, of power that God has done. He's taken the, the strongholds. And he's made the doom sure of our flesh, of our sin. But there's still pockets of resistance, aren't there? Let me continue because maybe there's more commentary that we needed. Um, there are outlying pockets of resistance. The gorillas of the flesh will not lay down their arms and must be fought back daily. And so the war has been won. If we are in Christ, we are already dead to sin and alive to Christ, alive with Christ. But there are still battles we must fight. Every exhortation for Christians to put sin away from them then is a call for us to increasingly become in practice what we already are positionally in Christ. Does that make sense? Does that make sense of what's going on in your soul? Because sometimes what we we feel is, man, if I'm struggling with sin, there's something wrong with me. Maybe I really haven't trusted in Christ. Maybe God really hasn't saved me. But the war in your soul actually signifies that the Spirit resides in there. That the Spirit is working. And He's wanting you to be complicit with Him to eradicate that sin that is destroying you. We are in a spiritual battle. Any questions on that? Comments? All right, our call to action. If God has done this work, He's saved us by His power, brought us out of sin, and and crucified us to sin, and has brought us now to be able to love, to want to obey His commands, and to be able to obey His commands, then, then we need to be complicit with Him in doing it. 
We mentioned earlier that when we're converted, our nature has changed so that our mindset, our affections, our desires become oriented to the things of God so that we can see and understand things that we didn't understand before. We, we may have understood the concepts, but now we understand the significance of it for our life and for our eternity. We also talked about God being the one who enabled us to do this. And God completes the work that He started in us. However, our Christian life is not meant to be a spectator sport, is it? Rather, we're called to action. Here's how Paul puts it in Philippians 3.12. It's on your handout. I, not that I've already obtained it or already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. So another way of putting that is I take hold of what Christ has take, taken hold of me. God does this work of transformation and now I receive it. I am complicit with Him. It's not a call for passivity, but it's a call for action to take hold of what Christ has taken hold of in me. And this twofold way of thinking about our Christian life is, is everywhere found in the Scripture. This morning we're going to look at three basic things that Scripture calls us to do as Christians as we seek to live a life that pleases God. So turn to Colossians chapter 3. Three things that Scripture calls every believer to do. Number one, set your mind on things above. Colossians 3.1. That comes right from the text. Set your mind on things above. Someone read that for us. Verses 1 through 4. Alright, so verse 1, Therefore, if you've been raised with Christ, then don't worry about it. Okay, Don't, don't, don't worry about anything else. Just, just kind of let go and let God. Right? Is that what the text says? No, if you have been raised with Christ, if you have been raised with Christ, then you need to set your affections on things above. So, set your heart on those things. Then he follows with three more specific exhortations which form part of the basis of this morning's outline. The first exhortations follow the general rule or the general call to seek after God with regard to our mind. In verse 2, Paul tells us to set our minds on things above and not on earthly things. In other words, if we're going to live a life that glorifies God, then one way that we do that one way that we seek Him and His will is that we must cultivate a heavenly mindset. We must cultivate a heavenly mindset. It's not enough for us to simply assume that, well, God's given us a new nature, and so He must have given us a new mindset too. And so we can just sit back and watch the Spirit move. But nowhere in Scripture does, does it tell us to be passive in our sanctification. When I, mean, when I say passive, I mean that we're kind of detached. We're inactive. Instead, the Scripture calls us in our sanctification to be proactive. 
Yes, God has given you a new nature, but you need to work to change your mindset. Because our minds are still have the residual effects of our former way of life, of our former enslavement, of our former death. There's still um, pockets of resistance like we were talking about before, but there's also still elements of, of deadness in us that need to come alive. And it starts with our mindset. In Ephesians 3, Paul refers to this and Romans 12 as renewing our minds. When we repent and believe we once and for all have been given a new nature and a new mindset must come through us as we renew our minds. We're still prone to fall to our old patterns of thinking and desiring. Does that describe your life as a Christian? That, that there's still times when, when you want to go back to the old way where you take pleasure in the sins of this world. That's true of me as well. Well, how do we set our minds on things above? How do we do this? There are lots that we could say, but first, Philippians 4, 8. It is to meditate on God's Word. Remember Philippians 4, 8. Whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think on these things. Again, positive, proactive command. If there's something that's good to think about, then think about that. Set your affections on those things. Meditate on those things. The best cure for negative, sinful thinking is positive, spiritual thinking. So so maybe you're struggling with the same old sins and the same old temptations and the same old dirty thoughts. Then what Paul says here in Philippians 4.8, what the Holy Spirit wants us to know is that we need to set our affections on something else. Set our minds on something else other than those things. Because, uh, um, like Jesus said, that, that when a, a demon is removed from an empty cavity of a body, so to speak, then that's not going to do anything for that person unless they are changed by the power of the Spirit. Because otherwise, what's going to happen is a bunch more demons are going to come and, and fill up the void. And similarly, with regard to our lives as believers, we can't just put off. I'm just going to stop thinking those things. Okay, now. Ah, uh, I didn't work. Okay, now I'm going to stop thinking those things. That's why the commands to put off are, are almost always, if not always, combined with the commands to put on. Right? You put off those old sinful ways, but if you just do that, it's not going to help you. You need to put on. So put off the bad, negative, godless thinking and put on the, the godly spiritual thinking. And that's, that's done by meditating on God's Word. Secondly, obey God's Word. Philippians 4.9 Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. So Paul says, follow my example as I follow Christ, right? The evidence that we are living by faith, trusting in God, hoping in the eternal inheritance that has been promised to us is that that we are obedient to God, that we actually have desires to please God and we're following through that with obedience.
So, if we're dead to sin, alive to Christ, then we should set our minds on things that reflect that reality. Next, we need to put to death the things belonging to the sinful nature. We need to put to death the things belonging to the sinful nature. All right. Are we already in Colossians? Colossians 3, 5. Yes, we are. Colossians 3, verse 5. It says, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead. So, wait a second. I thought God already made us dead to sin. Well, he's saying, you, you have been made dead to sin. Now consider your life that way. Now live that way. Right? That's what he's saying as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. So, what does Paul tell these Colossian Christians to do, and by implication, us? Put to death whatever belongs to their sinful nature. So, first, set your minds on things above, verses 1 through 4. Cultivate a spiritual disposition. Secondly, put to death the flesh. Become practically what we already are positionally. God is making us into someone who is holy and blameless. He has positionally made us holy and blameless by virtue of Jesus' righteousness. And so now become what He's already made you positionally. And notice what kinds of things we are to put to death. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. Other translations says, put to death whatever belongs to the sinful nature. So, it's not like, well, just the big things. The big things that are going to cause some destruction. The big things that people in my church or family might uh, be harmed by. I can, I can get rid of those. I understand that. But these little ones, the, these kind of pet sins, nobody really knows about or doesn't really affect anything in the big scheme of life. I can hang on to those. And yet, what Paul says is, no, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. No matter what it is, put it off. So that means we need to be aware, be aware of sinful attitudes and actions. Okay, so that's your next blank there. Be aware of sinful attitudes and actions. Because sinful attitudes and actions are inconsistent with what Christ made us to be, made, made us to be. So if we're going to do that, we need to to be aware of them, or we could say it this way: identify sinful attitudes and actions. And if you're not doing this, if you're not taking a, a stock of the sin that is besetting you, then who is? waiting around for someone else to take stock of your sin and then tell you about it? No, that's something that we need to do. We know our hearts. I mean, we know ourselves. And so we need to be taking stock. We need to be identifying the sinful actions that are 
are warring against the Spirit within us. A good way to do this is to look at, at the vice passages like Galatians 5, 17-21. What kind of sins are mentioned in those lists that describe the way that I live and think? And what, what are the sins that keep ri- raising up their ugly heads in my life and causing destruction both outside of me and inside of me? So first, identify or be aware of. Secondly, proactively seek deliverance from these sins. Proactively seek deliverance from these sins. It's a good first step to identify your sins, the the things that beset you from running the race well. But that's not enough. Because it's only through the power of God only through God's work that those things are going to be removed. And so, this would include confession and forsaking of sins. Right? Um, Luke 9.23 says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So, so count the cost. See what it costs daily to follow him. And part of that is, I need to be aware of my sins and be willing to remove them. That's what a Christian is like. If that's what God has made me to be, then why am I not living that way? Next, clothe, clothe yourself with Christian virtues. Skip down to verse 12. Colossians 3. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone... Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So Paul says, develop your spiritual mindset by setting your affections on things above, verses 1-4. through four. And then he says, put to death things that are, that are um, warring against the Spirit. Put to death the deeds of the flesh, verses 5-9. through nine. And then here in verses 12-14, through 14, He gives us another challenge, and that is to clothe ourselves with Christian virtues. To to dress yourself with the fruit of the Spirit. Put it on like clothes. Now, we could spend time going through each of the fruit of the Spirit, and we could compare this to Galatians 5 and so on, but the point is that, that we have a responsibility to put on the good works that God has called us to. Now, which fruit here is the most superior and why is it superior? Love. Why do you say that? Okay. Verse 14, Beyond all these things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. At the source of all these virtues, why I think it's listed first in Galatians 5:22, Love, joy, peace. Because it, it really... It, it really underscores or, or um, drives each of the other virtues. It's, it's the motivating factor behind every single one. In fact, 1 Corinthians 13. You can do all these things. You can speak with the tongues of men and of angels. You can give all that you have. But if you don't have love, then it's nothing. It's like a clanging cymbal. Without love, all these other virtues would be hollow. They're just 
mindless actions or or um, or they're done for the wrong motives. So as Christians, the one indispensable piece of clothing that we must put on is love. If we're going to put on any of these virtues, then we have to have love. So how do we do this? How do we take something like that, a command to clothe ourselves with love or with any other virtue and make sense of it? Two fundamental things. First, meditate often on the fact that the virtues with which we are to clothe ourselves are all virtues God exhibits toward us in salvation. So, meditate on God's virtue. Meditate on the virtues of God. That's a better way to put it on your blank there. Meditate on the virtues of God. In other words, if we're supposed to clothe ourselves with compassion, why? Well, God was compassionate with us. If we're supposed to clothe ourselves with kindness, why? Well, God was kind to us. How could we not want to be kind to someone else who's done much less to us than he, than, than we have done to he, Him? How about humility, right? I mean, Jesus was the perfect model of humility. And that He gave Himself. He condescended and took on flesh and died. Gentleness, patience, all of these things are modeled in God's virtues, God's character. So meditate on what God has done for you, the the gospel of Jesus Christ, that He has come and condescended to you with these kinds of virtues, and we um, should be happy to do this to to our fellow believers and to our friends who are unbelievers. Secondly, as you understand more of how God's love has been applied to you, apply that same love to the relationships that you have. So apply the same love that you see in the gospel to your relationships. Apply the same love. First John 3.16 says, This is love. Christ laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. And as we do this, this gives us assurance of salvation. We talked a little bit about this last week. This is one of those subjective um, means by which we can have assurance of salvation. The objective means is that God is true to His promises. He's never going to fail. The subjective means is that we carry out these fruits of the Spirit. As we grow, as we are putting off sin and growing in the fruits of the Spirit, it actually um, assures us that we are a child of God because who else can do these things? Who else has the power, the ability, or even the desire to produce the fruit of the Spirit? And the answer is no one. Only Christians have that ability, the power, the desire to do that. The power through Christ. So as you start to see those evidences in your life, it actually assures you that you are a child of God. Here's how John puts it in 1 John 3.14. We know that we have passed from death to life if we love our brothers. We know. So there can be assurance of salvation as we're producing these fruit or through the power of the Spirit producing these fruits. As Christians, we're called to pursue godliness and we do that by cultivating a godly mindset, putting to death the deeds of the, the flesh, the sinful nature, 
and clothing ourselves with Christian virtues, especially love. Any questions or comments? All right, let's um, pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, thankful for the power of the gospel that it doesn't just save us. It, if that's all it did, that would be that'd be amazing, and we would praise you for it. But it's done much more than that, Lord. It's it's given us the power to change, and we can do that through through your Spirit as we reflect on your Word and reflect on the gospel, and uh, we now have new desires and new abilities by virtue of the work that you have done. So we. We uh, gladly follow your commands. We gladly um, ignore and turn away from our sins. And now we pray that you'd help us to, to do that all depending on you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.